0: Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with filmmaker Lata Mani and host Michael Lerner, as they discuss her new film, The Poetics of Fragility.
1: Lata Mani, welcome to the new school.
2: It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking
1: me. You are described, uh, as a feminist historian, cultural critic, contemplative writer, and filmmaker. Um, you grew up in, uh, in Mumbai. Uh, moved to London in your teens where you went to high school and did undergraduate work there. Uh, wor- worked as a media planner in uh, Britain and India. And uh, your involvement in the autonomous women's movement in India in the early 1980s brought you back to graduate school where you received a master's in comparative world history and a PhD in the history of consciousness at the University of California, Santa Cruz. You were then on the faculty of women's studies at UC Santa Cruz when a head injury in 1993 catapulted you into the world of illness and disability. This experience inaugurated a new phase of physical, intellectual, and spiritual transformation, deepening previous commitments to social justice in unanticipated ways. Since then, your work has drawn on secular as well as contemplative frameworks in addressing pressing social-cultural issues. More recently, you have moved beyond text to experiments with image and sound, And that includes several collaborations with Nicolas Grandi. And we're delighted that Nicolas is here today and we're going to watch one of your films. Nicolas, thank you so much for being with us. Um, Take us back to the day of the accident in 1993. What happened?
2: Um, Since most of you are Californians, this will probably be um, quite familiar to you. It was a cold January day beautiful winter sun, uh, excellent visibility on high 80, which is not always the case. I think if, you, if you've driven towards Sacramento, you know that the fog is legendary. Mm. Nothing of the sort, everything was crystal clear. I was in the fast lane, driving at 55 miles an hour because the, the road was completely open and empty and free. Uh, I was traveling with my colleague, who was also teaching with me at UC Davis. I was at UC Davis, um, not UC Santa Cruz. And uh, on our way, I, I suddenly in the rearview mirror saw highway patrol lights twirling and like a law-abiding citizen that I continue to be, I thought, let me get out of their way. They're obviously on their way to an, uh, the scene of an accident or a crisis. What I did not realize was that I was unwittingly moving into the path of the truck who they were chasing. Mm. It turned out to be a Pepsi Cola truck going at 100 miles an hour, not something you calculate when you are when you are driving. And before I knew it, I could I, I realized that the truck was going to be I, it was going to uh, uh, collide with me, and there was nothing I could do. So I just held on, and uh, I was very aware that there was nothing I could do. But quite spontaneously into my mind fell the thought, and I, you are not going to die, you have much to do. Who thought that thought? I don't know. Where did it come from? I have no idea. Did I hear it? Did I see it? Yes. And then um, the kindness of the brain is that it goes into slow motion when it, in order to protect itself. So, and it's rather like movies. Uh, Everything slows down. Uh, I felt I had I felt that I had continuous consciousness. My passenger passed out, and I just saw the the windshield shattering in extreme slow motion. And when I when the car finally the car lifted into the air was crashed to the other end of the freeway. Luckily, it was that stretch of freeway where there is a chain link fence. If I'd hit the wall. At that speed, I doubt if I'd have survived. Um, So there was some give. Eventually, the car came to a halt. Turned out there were six highway patrol cars chasing this truck, one of whom stopped to see what had happened to us. So that's what happened, that crisp, wintry morning. Mm -hmm. And it was the beginning of uh, another phase in my life. Mm phase of deep illness and through that and grad- very very gradual recovery not entirely complete recovery mm-hmm. but I'm much better than I was mm-hmm. for many years
1: and you've written among many other books this exquisite illness memoir called Interleaves Ruminations on Illness and Spiritual Life I've read quite a few illness memoirs and um it is rare that anyone Describes phenomenologically as beautifully as you do the experience of illness. Um, And one of the central things that happened to you was an encounter with the divine feminine. Mm -hmm. Could you describe? when that emerged, and what shape it took?
2: Gosh, that's a difficult question, partly because um, you you feel like a beggar in the face of um, an experience like that uh, in terms of your capacity to marshal language to describe the experience. So having said that at the outset, uh, let, let me say that quite often people with brain injuries have spontaneous spiritual experiences. This is a well-documented phenomenon. And so my experience was in that sense not remarkable, uh, fairly typical. Perhaps what was unusual about it was its sustained nature. Um, in the depths of the injury, uh, with um, everything having been shattered, all the, all the soft tissue in my body had been destroyed. Um, although my musculoskeletal <laughs> frame was intact. There was not a fracture. But there was the usual swelling of the brain, and um, uh, uh, it, it was a closed head injury and concussion and so on. In the depths of that, um, I, felt I, I, fell, I felt I had fallen into a crater on the moon. Um, uh, in, in, that, in that space, I started to experience um, extremely powerful... Energy field of love and light. Um, I don't see things, I just feel things. Um, This is what I felt. And I felt as though I recognized this energy field, even though I had never been of a spiritually inclined, nor even in the least bit interested in religion. Indeed, I had a kind of deep skepticism. Since in my growing up years, many people who openly spoke of being religious were often people who were quite sort of indifferent and um, routinely and casually unkind to people that they might meet. Um, perhaps not deliberately, but you know, fairly thoughtless. And I could not match their claims about being religious with their with their conduct and not having had any reason to trust that the spiritual life m- might have its integrity, since I had not personally experienced it, I assumed that their, you might say, um, carelessness or casualness towards other human beings had something to do with their religious inclination. Mm -hmm. This this response to their conduct, of course, is my own ignorance, Uh, something which I came to understand when um, my own world was blown open by the arrival of this in my life uh, that, I, uh, um, that I had not beckoned,
1: if mm-hmm. you like. Mm-hmm. You, um, I don't know if I can find it here, but there's a passage, I think, at the beginning of this. Uh, can you read this section? Just any piece of that? Yeah, starting at the top and just reading as far as it makes
2: sense. It's, it's a short poem called, uh, well, it's a prose piece, really, it's yeah. a poem. Uh, it's called Autobiography. The ocean of love, the lotus of compassion, woman born of the fire of consciousness, daughter of the divine feminine, dancing in the joy, pain, delusion of incarnation, searching, searching, searching outside for the universe that is verily within the more she sought, the more she held all the pain, joy, delusion in her flesh. Twisted, tortured, bloated, doubled in pain, she nonetheless crawled across the globe, across the color line, across the sexual continental divide, seeking love in women's faces and eyes. Diving deep into Marxism, then feminism, then postmodernism, then post-what? All the while the toxins of fears unspoken, love unfelt, grief bottled, joy thwarted, swirled in the underwater world of her body. Whirlpools of pain zinging and boinging against the vertebrae and bubbling in the intestinal tract. The noises of stories half-accepted, fully believed, badly digested, grew to a din. There seemed no way out. Then the big bang of a Pepsi truck skewered her out of the chaos. A deep stillness descended as the long, dark night of the soul was born. At first, pitch dark, Darker than Kali's body, brighter than her eyes. Later, a few stars, and then the sun-moon herself. A child in a tiny boat, floating, floating, floating. All landmarks dissolved by the ever-receding horizon. No past to hold on to, no future in view. Present, continuous. Deep Breathing, tender teaching, meditation. Wooed by bliss, then by a never-ending, ever-deepening devotion, the figure on the bed tossed between being bent over in pain and lying open-handed, wide-hearted in prostration to the divine. Grief, pain, increasingly dancing Kali's famed dance in her cells. And where, oh, where was the past in this presence continuous? At the core of each breath, the center of every dream, the nightmare in the mirror, the demons under the bed. She was in pre-op for cosmic surgery. Nowhere to run, no way to hide, only a deeper and deeper, starker and starker nakedness everything stripped away, slowly, gently, inexorably. And in the solitude of the ever-increasing visitations of self, she begins to speak, to weep, to howl, to scream, to release and repent. And then the crutch whip of repentance is gently removed as she is taught the hardest lesson of all compassion, forgiveness, tenderness. All the while the Paramatman light is falling noiselessly like virgin snow. And as she slowly, oh, so slowly begins to love herself, the lotus blooms from her heart and angels begin to sing.
1: If you can imagine a whole book like that, um, that's the exquisite nature of this memoir. Uh, we've, we've I had the pleasure of uh, talking with you uh, before we began today and I just find as I said to you such deep personal resonances with where you have arrived and I have arrived by a very different route uh, but as I told you, I had a heart attack uh, about 13 years ago and um, and also had... A very powerful experience of the divine that has stayed with me ever since. And um, but if there's a difference, my path was that I have been seeking the divine for over 40 years, you know. And uh, but like you, tra- I mean, you were a feminist historian, cultural critic, and so forth. Um, but I was schooled in political science, political sociology you know, contemporary philosophy and so forth. And there was no room for the divine mm-hmm. in either your framework or mine. Um, um, somehow I escaped from it earlier as a inclination and so was kind of seeking it over a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the things that fascinates me most about your work and... Um, uh, you've written a whole series of books, The Integral Nature of Things, Cultural Reflections on the Present, Interleaves, which is the uh, illness memoir, Ruminations on Illness and Spiritual Life, Sacred Secular, which is beautiful, Contemplative Cultural Critique, and then earlier were Contentious Traditions, The Debate on Sati, which is wife-burning in colonial India, and then this beautiful book that I look forward to reading, I haven't yet, called The Tantra Chronicles, Spiritual Teachings of Devi, Shiva, Jesus, Mary, and the Moon, as well as a series of, um, of children's books. And so it's a wonderful... And in each book, uh, the, the cultural reach is just extraordinary. And um, so... Um, just to find a starting place... Um, we might begin with your thinking on um, the anatomy of faith, which is in one of the essays in your book, Sacred Secular. How do you see this challenge that we face? Of um, You've said elsewhere in this collection, I proposed that we bring together sacred and secular epistemologies in comprehending the world around us. I make this suggestion in full awareness that the secular arose in contradistinction to the sacred and required its negation as a valid form of knowledge for social or scientific inquiry. In the secular culture of the academy today, the realm of the sacred is acceptable as philosophy and theology, as the subject proper of anthropology, history, sociology, as the fecund muse of poetry and art. So it's deemed a source of inspiration It is not, however, seen as offering a conceptual framework that can contribute to understanding of things other than itself. The promise of post-structuralist theory and its bequest, interdisciplinarity, was precisely the taking down of boundaries that had hindered our capacity to map phenomena in all their complexity. And then you go on to say, the forking of the secular and the sacred was inaugurated by the Enlightenment And the Enlightenment obviously extolled reason and science. Uh, But what you are, uh, but you say post-structuralist theory developed an important critique of the coercive aspects of Enlightenment thought. However, it left undisturbed two of its key interlinked tenets, the presumption of the sacred as inevitably superstitious and regressive, and the arrogation to the secular of all that is defensible from a progressive perspective. I just think this is so critically important for our time. Mm -hmm. And it's the issue that I've struggled with a lot. And I wonder if you could sort of expand on your thinking on that critical juncture and how you see the potential resolution.
2: Let me come at it gradually, sort of sideways. Um, And I partly do that because the... Secular is normative. That is Mm -hmm. to say, it is the reigning paradigm. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a deep distrust of anything that we cannot prove, Mm -hmm. that we cannot demonstrate uh, Mm -hmm. repeatedly. Um, At the same time, there is so much of human experience that is uncontainable within these categories. And there are many accounts of such experience. And even though they mount they have failed to undermine Mm -hmm. um, certainly the privileging of the secular rationalist framework in certain domains. Mm -hmm. Um, We do know that there are many societies uh, in the world where the sacred is intimately, deeply, and effortlessly interwoven into every aspect of life. Mm -hmm. So we should not speak as though the academic um, um, disciplines dominate the entire world. In fact one of one of the problems that we have is that the pati- various particulars have stood for universals. And because those particulars that stand for universals have often been aligned with structures of power they have been able to pretend as though they speak for all people at all times, right? So even as we even as we describe certain modes, certain paradigms as normative we have to understand that they're actually very local. So we speak of their normativity and also their, 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 their um, inevitably local, uh, local status. Um, for me, if I can start um, uh, autobiographically, since we began this conversation in that vein, what I was experiencing blew open any framework that I had been using in, or drawing upon in order to understand the world and What I began to realize was that if I were to be cognitively honest, which in fact um, my academic training had uh, asked me to do, had invited me to do, if I had to be cognitively honest, I would have to find a way of embracing at the heart of my um, attempt to make sense of the world the idea of unknowing. Mm -hmm. Unknowing Vulnerability, curiosity, fearlessness. This is the constellation.
1: Unknowing, vulnerability, curiosity, and fearlessness.
2: Yes, because as soon as you accept unknowing as um, a path of inquiry, where as a modus of inquiry, if you like, if if you accept the premise of unknowing, then you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable to what you might discover, mm-hmm. because what you might discover might challenge everything that you had drawn upon in order to make sense of, uh, of life mm-hmm. or, or phenomena up until that point. Mm-hmm. And in order to open yourself to unknowing and vulnerability, you have to be fearless. Uh, we create cognitive castles in which of which we are kings and queens you know as a way of anchoring ourselves in infinity and not being overwhelmed by the sheer plenitude in which we exist and we exist on the basis of cognitive and other maps that we create uh, in order to bring some order into what we imagine as disorder in order to open yourself to the idea that you may not understand the whole, but that there is a place for you, there is a particular place in which you are suspended between uh, cognitive abeyance and cognitive free fall. Even as we do not have a sure cognitive foothold, there is a way in which we are making sense even as our language is not adequate for what it is that we're seeking to describe, we are drawing on language. So it is this, there is this continual doubleness in which we exist, you know, knowing, unknowing, partial knowing, um, imperfectly grasped intuitions, certain, um, certain things that seem appear to be clear uh, for which we have this uh, certain kind of language at our disposal to, to describe it at a certain point in our journey. So it's a continually dynamic process and we try to find our foothold by means of orienting points that are enabling and not disabling. Rationalist frameworks offer you a way of sense-making that work precisely by excluding all that it cannot explain. Is it possible to keep ourselves open to the fact of our existence in infinity? By means, and, by means and by orienting points that are a- enabling and not disabling. And they are enabling precisely of that which we don't know. They're enabling precisely by making us fearlessly curious. They're enabling b- by making us modest. You know, we give up the, the fiction of mastery and we open ourselves to the being humble explorers, conscious of our rich particularity. And we embrace that particularity as a point um, from which we seek to understand the intrinsically relational existence in which, of which we are a part. We cannot stand apart from the world in which we live. We are a part of the world in which we live. We're embedded in a set of complex and ever-transforming interrelationships that are both social, uh, human, and natural. We are connected to all these worlds simultaneously. And the languages we have, for the most part, to understand human experience are not capacious enough to allow for many dimensions of it.
1: That's beautiful. Um... So the Enlightenment project and the the way you are describing the uh, the cognitive frameworks that can either be prisons or openings, uh, um, and uh, and this view of um, of vulnerability and curiosity. Uh, what were the four that you used? Unknowing. Oh, unknowing. Vulnerability, vulnerability,
2: curiosity, curiosity, and
1: fearlessness. And fearlessness. Um, And and the critique, uh, not the critique, but the description of the Enlightenment project and how it led to the dominance of the secular. And that is all very clear. I wonder how you treat the Romantic movement, which uh, for a long time in Western civilization has been the counterpart. Mm -hmm to the Enlightenment project, and which is very alive in the counterculture today, Mm -hmm. um, and and which in fact privileges emotion and unknowing and spirituality at the expense of the rational and the cognitive and uh, so on. Particularly because um, it's always fascinated me that a number of the high Nazi figures were enchanted with Tibetan Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And uh, the whole, in fact, after World War II, part of what led philosophy to the embrace of pragmatism was the fear of the totalitarian capacity of romanticism. Mm -hmm. So you and I share an interest in reintegrating the spiritual into the context of secular discourse. But if we only focus on the um, Enlightenment project and its sequelae um, in secular thought, and don't look at both critically and compassionately the romantic response to it, we may not learn the lessons we need to integrate the spiritual into both dimensions of absolutely,
2: the human absolutely absolutely i think i was trying to point to that by when i when i said that there are the, there are these this is a normative framework yeah. it is it's not exhaustive in its description of right. what what right. prevails right and i should be very careful i've been trained well enough by my teachers at graduate school to know that you cannot dismiss something as complex as the Enlightenment, right. which was several-century experiment, mm-hmm. several-century development and right. phenomenon, in, in a short paragraph. Right. So a- anything that I might say in a paragraph is nothing but a very simple pen-and-ink sketch, right. if you like. Mm-hmm. And that it was itself, the Enlightenment project itself, From the, if you look at se- from the 17th century onwards, other philosophers and historians have, have mapped it, there were many different strains and streams. And what ended up on top, if you like, you know, what ended up winning, mm-hmm. um, is, is um, perhaps the least enabling of mm-hmm. the streams within a, a very important critique of um, theology mm-hmm. that developed in, in that time. The reason I call my book Sacred Secular is precisely because I feel like the secular traditions have a lot to teach us. They have developed an, uh, a, a wonderful categories for understanding social inequality, mm-hmm. political structures, forms of discrimination. There are many secular concepts that are vital. Mm-hmm. I do not pose the sacred as a, um, as, a, as a, the opponent of the secular. Mm-hmm. I feel that contemplative traditions give us some concepts which if we are willing to do the hard work of transcoding mm-hmm. and rearticulating in relation to important social concepts like class or race or power or even the historicity of our understanding of concepts we can then uh, perhaps draw on that which is most enabling in bo- in both traditions so i do not pose the sacred as an easily accessible Transhistorical, essentialist form of knowledge that can um, be counterposed to the sacred, which is somehow entangled in history, narrow and sectarian in its thinking. We have forms of religious thinking that are sectarian. We have forms of secular thinking that are sectarian. I think both have concepts that can be useful to us, and it is incumbent on us to think about how we might draw on both traditions. That's been the experiment.
0: You're listening to a conversation with Michael Lerner and filmmaker Latamani. I hear that,
1: and perhaps I'm missing something because the question I posed to you was about the romantic tradition, specifically as a counterpose to Mm What uh, the enlightenment? Tradition.
2: That is a historical and an empirical question, which I don't believe I am best suited to respond. Oh, okay. I am. I therefore I responded it, responded to your question in a more on a more conceptual way okay, because thank it's you. not the history that I have studied well enough okay. to be able to map and say you know there were these. Yeah, things. No, well
1: that's very spread. helpful. That's very helpful. There are so many things that I could ask you about, um, and so we're kind of sampling through this extraordinary uh, work that you've done. But um, one thing that tends to wake people up and is always a a good uh, question to ask, you have in in this book, The Integral Nature of Things, an essay on sex. And um, you start it by saying, it may seem odd to suggest that we take a dispassionate view of sex, since it has long been understood as instinctual passion. Yet while erstwhile opponents are united in their conception of sex, only divided in what, if anything, should be done about it, we know we are in the midst of an ideological thicket, and so on. And you, uh, you go on, uh, and I'll just read one, um, one, one brief passage, and then ask you to expand on your thinking on this. As we contemplate the interconnectedness of mind, heart, and body, we are led to discover the limitations of aspects of feminist, queer, and left arguments regarding sexuality, pornography, or sex work. The chief target of this critique tends to be the duplicity of the regulatory mechanisms of the state, law, police, etc., The double standards of dominant society's policing of behavior, and the denial of the right of sexual self determination of certain groups, to certain groups. Insofar as these arguments unravel the hypocrisy of normative notions and the negations and invasions they entail, we may readily support them. We may also join in celebrating queer, transgender, and women's sexuality. However, to the extent that this intervention shares presumptions with the normative notions, It avowedly opposes. It fails to offer a radical reframing of either sex or sexuality. It may succumb in pluralizing the content of the normative, but it leaves its basic structure intact." Um, So first, I'd love to ask you to just sort of summarize where your thinking on sex has taken you. But more broadly in your work, I find it fascinating that quite often, what you do, which I love, is that you look at the polarities left and right of whatever of some dialogue or discourse that you're thinking about, and then you pose in some a kind of a third step back to look more deeply at the whole thing and and reconsider the whole thing. So you're doing, in a sense, the same thing with uh, whatever we want to call spirituality. Mm-hmm. You're saying, you know, uh, you know, the, the enlightenment, the secular tradition has taken on every aspect of uh, what preceded it except spirituality and, you know, sort of stepping back. So in the same way, you're sort of stepping back on sex and asking for a reconsideration. Where does that leave you?
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, let me see. One of the things that I discovered in the depths of my illness was something that I had been tone deaf to prior to that, and that was the deep intelligence of the body. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, I think I had been, even though as a feminist, uh, body politics has been at the heart of feminist theorising, feminist activism, feminist understanding, um, so the body had been a site of research for me. Indeed, my book on widow burning made an argument that um, uh, women's bodies had become the terrain for a debate on tradition. What had traditionally been, and historically been seen by historians as being a, deb- as being a debate about women was actually a debate about tradition waged on the bodies of women, you know, mm-hmm. in a, in a, and articulated on the bodies of women. That said, I had not inhabited my own body. And with the mind unplugged by the brain injury, I was in a kind of deep free fall into the body. And having found myself, having landed there, as it were, it was an entire entire landscape to be discovered. Mm -hmm. Not to take us away from your question, but one of the things that was understood in that period was just, how intelligent the body was, and how the body's intelligence had not been accessible to me since I, and uh, perhaps partly shaped by the way the education system had trained me to think about intelligence, had resided almost entirely in the mind. One of the ways in which um, not just the education system or contemporary thinking, but even spiritual thinking tends to see the body as a site of passion, sensation, um, instinct, all of which must be brought under control mm-hmm. by the mind. Mm-hmm. So both, again, sacred, secular, right? There are two different streams. The body is also seen, today the body is seen as a site of desire. Desire itself is seen as at, as being at the heart of subjectivity, as the heart of autonomy, the self Um, Self-determining subject is a desiring subject. In our time, it's also the consuming subject. Aspiration is deeply connected to desire and consumption. And the free subject is the sexually free subject. Uh, Sexual sexual freedom is at the heart of our notion of freedom itself. And yet, we think of the body as nothing other than a site of instinctual passion. Um, And The heart longs, the mind plans and plots, the body releases. So even if you think about sexual narratives, the body is always, body is nothing other than the site of sensation and sexual fulfillment is about the release of that sensation. Uh, The mind is the plotter, the heart is the yearner, the body is the site where that yearning is released. Mm-hmm. You know, which, which does not allow subjectivity to the body. The body then becomes an object. or The body then becomes a terrain or a territory. Mm-hmm. And I think in our time when, for example, let's take the internet, the largest force on the internet is pornography. Mm-hmm. Whatever you think of it, we're no longer living in Victorian England,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? So we are now living in a very complex time where um, <coughs> the right distrusts sex, and feels that the sex and the body should be regulated.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: The left privileges sex, mm-hmm. and, and uh, sexual libertarianism is the, is the frontier of freedom. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we live in a, in a socio-cultural space and time when the body, sex, and sexuality have become very contentious terrains on which so much is being worked out and worked through. Is it possible to have sensuous dispassion towards sex and towards the body? Mm -hmm. Sensuous so that you are um, fully present in the body. Sensuous so that you're not resisting the body and its hopes, its dreams, its desires, and its intelligence. Dispassion because we are required to look even at our understanding of the body as being historically situated and culturally conditioned. Right? Mm -hmm. So is it possible for us to be fully in our body, fully present, and at the same time mindful that our, our experience of the body is itself an effect of cultural conditioning and a, a historically specific cultural conditioning that can be named? And is it possible to embrace and honor the intelligence of the body as we navigate the difficult and complex terrain of our times? Does that
1: make Makes a make lot sense? of sense. Thank you. I want to sample one other area of your work just because it's so different. Um, You've thought a lot about the subject that I've thought a lot about, which is global trade systems and what they reflect. Um, In the moment that we're talking, uh, in uh, October uh, 2016, uh, something has happened that seemed completely unbelievable uh, two and a half years ago, which is that the trade treaties that the multinational corporations thought they were sure to get, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the uh, Transatlantic TTIP Partnership, uh, the Canadian-EU Partnerships are all collapsing. Mm-hmm. And um, and this is due to an extraordinary effort among a network of NGOs stretching around the world um, uh, that mobilized and recognized that what seemed so boring, namely trade agreements, were not really about tariffs. They were about uh, multinationals making a law against making a law against corporations. And that this, uh, that these trade agreements once entered into uh, could not be left and uh, gave multinationals the ability to um, uh, sue countries and have the suits to... Uh, decided in private courts and so on. I could go on about it, but it's it's something that I've been fascinated by and engaged with for the last two and a half years. A lot of the best thinking on uh, global trade and global financial structures really has come out of the third world, or whatever we want to call it, third world network. You know, Vandana Shiva, Martin Kor, people like that have been at the heart Uh, of a lot of the really important thinking on these structures. So, just starting there, we are living at a moment, we all know this, in which um, the very fabric of life is being destroyed by the uh, global system we're in. And... um, You've written about so many of the subjects in that, whether trade or technology or uh, just all the other subjects. I guess the question I want to pose to you is, um, do you see a way out of the global problematique that we are facing uh, in which um, we feel ourselves so easily to be in a, a system that, despite a million efforts to resist it. Um, It seems to absorb and um, overwhelm every effort to to reshape it. Has your thinking, your, your cultural criticism, and your experience of the divine led you to see what seems to you to be the most promising way toward... A living future, toward a sustainable future.
2: Gosh. <laughs> um, well, my work in globalization, just just to just to locate it, has mostly looked at the cultural logic of globalization. Mm-hmm. For the most part, um, the, the critique of globalization has been an economic one, mm-hmm. and that is crucial. But since I moved to Bangalore, and Bangalore is a kind of petri dish for what is happening to India since India opened up its markets, um, I've been interested to to supplement and complement that critique by pointing to the cultural shifts and transformations. That's one. That's one, just just a a clarification. But in terms of... um, I feel like we're living in a very surreal time. I actually feel that global capital cannot reproduce itself in the way it has been reproducing itself since the Industrial Revolution. I mean, it's just no longer possible. It's not a viable model, partly because um, the over-extraction, I think we've we've already entered the the era of diminishing returns. And um, I I even think that, The folks, I actually think that um, the forms of government that we have, world government or even international institutions that currently um, regulate um, trade, people at the highest levels are completely aware of this. It feels as though every time there is a crisis, somehow the crisis is managed and we go on. But I think that we are living we're living in a kind of ghostly present becoming a non future yes and the only really living alternatives are in people's movements community efforts people who have never entered into you know people who are still part of barter economies and who've never really entered the monetary the monetary system uh, who still have the skills to live outside of the monetary system mm. and new forms of organizing and new kinds of imagination that are emerging. I actually think the future is local. Mm -hmm. We may continue to remain connected, but the ways in which the architecture of globalization that is currently in place and seemingly in play, I think its days are numbered. And I can't, um, it's an intuitive, intuitive feeling and a feeling that comes from the fact that that which it needs in order to reproduce itself and in order to sustain its hungers, because its, its appetite is voracious, mm-hmm. it simply doesn't, it's not going to have access to what it needs. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to have issues of climate change, um, fuel, mm-hmm. the sheer costs of transporting goods from China, mm-hmm. to continue to transport goods from China, civil strife. As a result of economic, uh, as a result of displacement because of ecological change, civil strife in this country, as a, as a result of rising unemployment, a de skilling of the population. You cannot have a population of service providers and consumers who simply do not even have the educational opportunities to enter a, 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 an imagination. Silicon Valley-fed imagination that this can be the laboratory of innovation and experimentation. Mm -hmm. It can be produced, the goods can be produced somewhere else, and your own population can simply consume. It's just not a tenable. I don't think it's tenable. Mm -hmm. So do I have hope? Absolutely, because as we know, even if you're not at all spiritually inclined, the ant can kill the elephant Mm -hmm. by biting the elephant in its ear. So is the small guys in, mm-hmm. in, in working collectively, working flexibly, working cooperatively, working with a broader imagination than that of selfishness. Mm-hmm. It, these are the forces that have always prevailed over time. Mm. Yeah. But I think our sense of time has to be opened out. You know, we live in a very instant gratification world. We live with a ver- with with a notion of time that's very short term. If I have hope, it's because I have a more brodelian notion of time, or even broader than that, cosmic notion of time. Mm. Uh, um, a, a sense of cycles, uh, a sense that you know nature always moves towards healing. Mm. There are any number of um, uh, stories of, um, of things restoring themselves when left alone. Mm. A lot of the chaos and the strife that we have created has been the result of conscious and systematic interventions, human interventions. If we withdraw from those forms of intervention and allow other forms, um, allow things to be, even allow humans to be, to reimagine new forms of localism, the question is, are there going to be new forms of localism or new forms of parochialism? And that is where I think you know, uh, social justice movements, movements that are very conscious of our deep interdependent existence across vast spaces, and the fact that we live in one world, one Earth, one cosmos, uh, those forms of um, understanding that we do not exist alone and we cannot have a future where we escape the mess we've made here and go to Mars, or some other planet, and start all over again. I think these are the forms of imagination that are going to prevail.
1: You know, I would just love to keep talking with you, but we want to watch this 62-minute film, and I wonder if you would briefly introduce it, and then we'll watch the film, and then we'll reconvene uh, after that to just chat a little bit more.
2: Absolutely. It's... um, the film is called, the, 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 it's a project. Uh, it, the project is called The Poetics of, of Fragility. Mm-hmm. Very much connects to the issues that we've been speaking about. Um, it's a transmedia project, by which I mean it's a film, an artist book, and a website. Mm-hmm. And the three are like three sides of a triangle. The project can be understood uh, in its richest sense when all three are, are um, encountered and enjoyed. Um, and they three complement each other. It's a bilingual project. It's Spanish as well as English. And um, it's a meditation, really, or a, ref- a set of reflections on a very simple proposition. We tend to think of fragility and strength as opposite to each other. Mm. And uh, we are thinking these two terms as co-implicated, -hmm. That fragility implies strength, and strength fragility. There's no strength without fragility, and no fragility without without strength. Mm -hmm. What we are looking at here is nature, the idea of fragility and strength, as in in a beautiful pas de deux or dance in nature, as well as in in relation to bodily fragility. But as you will see, um, what we are what we are saying here about. Body leaf and social, uh, bodily fragility also relates to the idea of social fragility and that is something perhaps we can talk about uh, after the film
0: Thank you You're listening to a conversation with Michael Lerner and filmmaker Latamani To find out more about the poetics of fragility please go to latamani.com That's l-a-t-a-m-a-n-i.com. After the film screening, the conversation continues with final remarks and thoughts with Michael Lerner and Latamani
1: I want to go back to part of that beautiful autobiography prose poem that you read. There's a segment there that you say the noise the noises of stories half accepted, fully believed, badly digested, grew to a din. There seemed no way out. Then the big bang of a Pepsi truck skewered her out of the chaos. A deep stillness descended as the long dark night of the soul was born. So as I read that, it sounds as if this came at a moment in your life in which um, the noises of stories half accepted, fully believed, badly digested had grown to a din and there seemed no way out.
2: Yes, but that was understood retroactively, yes. retrospectively. Right,
1: Retroactively—that's yeah, what I mean.
2: Right. Exactly.
1: So that retroactively, you saw
2: all that had had to be marginalised, suppressed, right, and not attended to in right. order that a certain fiction of self could be lived out. Right. Exactly. Right. Okay. So the autonomous self would be one concept.
1: And so, where. Did The the Tantra Chronicles came after your accident, is that correct?
2: The Tantra Chronicles were teachings we received after the accident.
1: And yes. you received them with your um, beloved friend, Ruth Frankenberg.
2: That's correct.
1: And uh, she and you were partners for how long?
2: Um, at that point, 10 years.
1: But you had 27 Eventually, years? Eventually, 23 years. 23 years together. Yes. She finally died of uh, of lung cancer. That's correct. Uh, in Bangalore. In Bangalore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but she was uh, both a, a profound intellectual partner in your work, but also the love of your life. That's correct. Yes, that's correct. And so the Tantra Chronicles, which you're going to be kind enough to send me a copy of, because I really. Uh, but there are 43 original spiritual teachings from Devi, Shiva, Jesus, Mary, and Moon, received and compiled by Ruth Frankenberg and Latamani. The teachings are revolutionary and contain the intellectual and spiritual wisdom sorely needed to correct our current course as a human collectivity. And then the introduction is by Devi, one of the one, one of the, the teachers. teachers was that received by you or by Ruth
2: All the teachings were received in her body Okay by her it was a process uh, it was a very synergistic synergistic process we both needed to be in meditation she could only receive if we were both in a particular state of consciousness mm-hmm. but they were received in her body and they were transcribed by me as part of my healing
1: I see Could you read uh, Davies words from the introduction
2: Certainly. Why this book? And why now? The Tantra Chronicles is directed to members of the human subdivision because Tantra is in urgent need of being restored to human consciousness. Tantra itself is not in need of restoration for its existence is entirely untouched. However, The truth of Tantra needs to be chronicled from the purview of some of its major participants. When I speak of restoring Tantra to human consciousness, then I'm speaking of restoring humans. I'm asking you to listen closely and to contemplate as we tell you who you are. This reintroduction to Tantra for the sake of my human children is being undertaken at a time when it is frequently said that the world is spinning faster than ever before. While this description is not literally true, it is metaphorically potent. The continuing rearticulation of humans into an array of always diverse actions and consequences is moving quite quickly. Indeed, it is at times moving so quickly that it becomes well-nigh impossible for humans to grasp what they are doing and what its consequences might be until it is too late to constrain or contain the problematic outcomes of particular developments. Having said this, let me also state the reality that there is always a way to revise and restore. And this is equally true for human understanding of Tantra. The rest of the planet is already living in accordance with Tantra. That's the first two paragraphs. Of
1: the so this was, in some sense, channeled uh, when you were both in meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were living in different places because work required that.
2: No, when when we were doing this work, we were in the same, oh, same I, room. Oh,
1: wonderful. Okay. So... Um, uh, it required that you both be in meditation at the same time, and then it would come through her body. Yes. And again, I want to read, The teachings are revolutionary and contain the intellectual and spiritual wisdom sorely needed to correct our current course as a human collectivity. A lot of money. I, I just want to say that uh, preparing for this conversation... Um, And uh, having the conversation with you um, has been extraordinarily uh, touching and powerful for me. Um, Because we had the film, we had less time than I would have liked to explore your work in more depth. I hope that life gives us another opportunity to continue the conversation. I would love to do that if there is such a possibility. And uh, for now, I simply want to thank you for being with us at the New School.
2: It was my pleasure. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity. And thank thank you so much for taking the time that you did to look and read and ask these deep questions.
1: Uh, I'm not sure I was equal to them, but thank you. Uh, It was a joy. And thank you all
0: for being here. (laughs) Real pleasure. You've been listening to a conversation with filmmaker Lata Mani and Michael Lerner. To find out more about the poetics of fragility, Please go to latamani.com. That's l-a-t-a-m-a-n-i.com. Thank you for listening to TNS, the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.